Coming up on Tech Nation, it's Pulitzer Prize-winning author Ed Humes, who's here today with The Forever Witness, how DNA and genealogy solved a cold case double murder. We get an object lesson in the three ages of DNA. And while it reads like a fast-paced cold case on steroids, it provides details no fiction writer would dare to make up, including the unexpected involvement of the famous true crimes writer Anne Rule and a person whose DNA skills are familiar to fans of the PBS documentary series Finding Your Roots with Henry Louis Gates Jr. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2010, I spoke with University of California, Berkeley, psychology professor Dacker Keltner and the Greater Good magazine editor Jason March about their book of essays, The Compassionate Instinct, The Science of Human Goodness. I asked them, is there any question as to what makes up the elements of human goodness? Well, I think that from a scientific and also an ethical perspective, that's one of the hardest questions is how do we define human goodness? How does it apply in different cultures and different contexts? And we take something of an ecumenical approach and we say it involves all kinds of emotions and strategies. Um, But you can think about one set of the elements of goodness being about enhancing the welfare of others and all ethical spiritual traditions have been writing about that and that's the science we focus on things like compassion and altruism and uh, gratitude and the like and an, another very important and underappreciated part of human goodness is how humans have evolved and developed culturally these abilities to reconcile in the midst of conflict right how to forgive and horrendous to, conflict right uh, just unimaginable conflict and that's a very big part of the story When we talk about the elements of human goodness, we frequently hear compassion, empathy, altruism, but we also hear forgiveness, for example, gratitude, apology. All of these things seem to always include other people. One other person, a set of other people. Is goodness uh, have to do with more than yourself? I mean, is that part of the basic definition? Uh, Well, that's certainly, I think, the working definition that you know we've been operating by in the work that we've been doing with Greater Good Magazine and the Greater Good Science Center, it truly is about the greater good, not just uh, satisfying your own personal desire or promoting your own personal happiness, but really achieving a, a deeper level of meaning and purpose and, and even happiness in your own life through the relationships that you cultivate with others and by promoting the welfare of others. Uh, so certainly, I think, by our definition and, and um, by the logic of this book and, and of our magazine and our center, truly promoting goodness and, and living a good life is really about cultivating strong, meaningful, compassionate relationships with others. Now, where does the science come in? Well, I mean, these are uh, the question of human goodness is a, a deep scientific question, right? Where is it uh, located in the brain and in our genes, perhaps, and in our nervous systems? And so, what has happened in what really inspired our center and then the science that I do at Berkeley is. There's really this new movement in evolution and neuroscience to begin to understand why we act altruistically. And that's in part because there are parts of the brain and parts of the nervous system that help you act pro-socially, right? Is that encoded in 
a particular set of genes that create those physiological systems. And we've discovered a little oxytocin gene, oxytocin receptor gene that maps to really empathetic behavior. And oxytocin's and a hormone, right? It is. It's a, a peptide that floats through your, um, your brain and your bloodstream that helps promote caring and trusting behavior. And there are genes that regulate those systems. And we're starting to map, inspired by this movement, some of those, those genetic markers. Psychology professor Decker Keltner and editor-in-chief Jason Marsh continue their work at the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley, which publishes the Greater Good magazine. While researching this segment, I noticed an item authored by contributor Brooke Anderson. It's entitled, Daily Quarantine Questions, So Relevant Now, with Many of Us Sheltering in Place. There are just six questions. What am I grateful for today? Who am I checking in on or connecting with today? What expectations of normal am I letting go of today? How am I getting outside today? How am I moving my body today? What beauty am I either creating, cultivating, or inviting in today? Greater Good Magazine can be found by Googling Greater Good Magazine, not just Greater Good, but Greater Good Magazine, or through greatergood.berkeley.edu. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Pulitzer Prize-winning author Ed Humes. You may know him from his many books, including Mississippi Mud and Garbology. Today we talk about his latest, The Forever Witness, how DNA and genealogy solved a cold case double murder. The three ages of DNA play strongly to identify the innocent and surprisingly pinpoint the perpetrator. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Ed Humes. Well, Ed, welcome back to Tech Nation. It's great to be here. Thanks, Moira. Now, people who haven't read your book might think, oh, this is just the book version of Cold Case Files. But I must tell you that I learned a lot from your book. That can't be told in an hour of television and can't be understood from just a a few minutes of interviews from the people involved. Uh, So let's start with the crime. What evidence was known at that time? Who were the people? Who were the victims? Let's go there. Sure. Well, the uh, story begins in 1987, you know, 35 years ago this month, in fact, with a road trip from the lovely uh, Vancouver Island, British Columbia. You know, it's Canada's warmest place, safest place. People don't lock their doors there, at least not in 1987. Um, this young couple, Tanya Van Kylenborg and Jay Cook, been dating about five months, are on their first overnight trip to the big city of Seattle. 
and going by car and ferry. They're actually running an errand for Jay's dad for his business. Uh, and they were also just going to uh, have a chance to do a little sightseeing, to anyone do a little shopping, take some pictures, you know, just a, a nice little outing. And their first, it was kind of exciting and a little nervous time for them doing this. Uh, and they get in the Cook family van and take a ferry to the mainland and decide to drive across the Olympic Peninsula's vast foreboding, beautiful, you know, largest wild coastline on the continent, um, undeveloped. And it's uh, had all the earmarkings of a memorable, great trip. And they just vanished. They never made it to their destination in Seattle. Tanya did not do what she always did, which is to call home, either if she was going to be late or if she arrived safely. This was the pre-cell phone era, of course, you know, and constant being in touch wasn't a thing, but she did. She always found a way. And when she didn't, both families knew something was wrong. The police, of course, thought they were just two young people on a, you know, a romantic jaunt and said, don't worry, they'll be fine. They knew better. And the family began to search, retrace their steps painstakingly uh, by vehicle. The, the Tanya's dad even rented an airplane to look for them by air. Nothing. And a week later, just as Tanya's dad felt he had made a breakthrough and got the police in Seattle to listen and to open a case, the call came that her body had been found and it matched her description. And um, that was the beginning of the, of the nightmare and a very enduring mystery that you know haunted the Pacific Northwest for, it was an international case for uh, three decades. The only evidence found to get to your core question uh was dna left behind by the killer and a single palm print um no fingers just palm on the back of the van that couldn't be accounted for and um no eyewitnesses no viable suspects and really no progress in the case for you know for ever since strangely enough her boyfriend uh jay cook was not found with her. No, no. So it was very odd crime. So they, the police retraced their steps to the, you know, through sheer shoe leather detective work because, you know, again, not only there were no cell phones where you could today perhaps track their movements, there was no pervasive video cams and, and uh, video that could be traced. They had to talk to people every every juncture, every gas station, every grocery store. And they, you know, they had a few receipts they, that, that were found. So they did manage to verify that the couple had gotten to Bremerton and bought a ferry ticket. But whether they boarded the ferry or not, uh, and made it to Seattle and then disappeared or were somehow diverted from the ferry, nobody knows to this day. And um, when Tanya was found, it was in a very rural area, not far from the Canadian border in Skagit County, uh, on a very lonely forest road. She had been uh, shot in the head once, killed execution style. Um, Jay and the van were still whereabouts unknown. And actually he became a suspect because as the cops always say, it's usually the, the romantic partner. It's, you know, it's always the boyfriend is kind of the uh, police mantra and they kind of braced the family, the cook family for, for that, uh, onslaught of attention, negative attention to Jay. But a few days later, his body was found 60 miles away, 
in a different county, Snohomish County, uh, in, a, in a place near a state prison facility called Highbridge. And he had been killed in an entirely different way. Uh, he had been bludgeoned with rocks and then strangled and, and choked to death. Uh, and he finally died of asphyxiation. The van was still missing. That was found in a third location, along with possessions belonging to both Tanya and Jay scattered under a bar near where the van was parked in Bellingham, picturesque tourist town in northern Washington. So there, there was multiple agencies involved. Everything from the FBI to the Mounties to the local police were involved in investigating this case, trying to figure out, was it two people? Um, what was the order of events? And um, without witnesses to, to who saw them, who knew, you know, if they were with somebody or followed by somebody or encountered somebody, there was just no uh, uh, way to piece it all together. It almost sounds like one of those creative writing uh, exercises where uh, this is in point A, this is in point B, and this other thing is in point C. Now, <laughs> now try to make a cohesive story out of it. And you had multiple local uh, police responsible for yeah. other parts of it. How do you make a rational story out of this? Actually, it was that's one of the things that most intrigued me. I, I loved the idea of the, the sort of multiple time frames and and sort of how a police investigation in 1987 could handle this compared to how we might do it now, and sort of the gains and loss of that because things that were totally private and that people took for granted the police couldn't do then, you know, commonplace now, right? Ever since 9-11, really, and, uh, and then some. So there was an interesting contrast there and a way to tell the story. Unfortunately, there was one, multiple characters who really sort of bridged that that gap and made sense of it. Uh, one was was Tanya's dad. He's, he's His character such a, you know, he's a figure out of Greek tragedy in my mind, because that he tried so hard to find his daughter and what parent couldn't empathize with that. So for the first section of the book, the 1987 time, he really was my touchstone and my guide and hopefully the reader's guide for, for those events. And then there was the cold case detective uh, who presided over the case through its conclusion, you know, and for 13 years he worked on it. But in 1987, he was a patrol deputy uh, with the same sheriff's department in Snohomish County where Jay's body was found. He knew that place intimately. He patrolled by it all the time. He wasn't involved with the case directly then, but he was aware of it. And so there's a through line for that character too that brings us to the present and to the remarkable investigation that finally filled in all those missing ga gaps in our knowledge about what happened. Well, let's stay with the 1987 in this regard is that while uh, the technology was different and really brought me back like, oh yeah, nobody really knew who you were. Like you'd go to Europe for a month and no one would expect to hear from you. You'd like schedule one phone call home. It's like, right. these were different times. You could get lost. Um, but another thing that we always hear is how badly our memories are. And so, oh, the witnesses and their memories, you got to, you know, work with them. And yet 31 years later, enter Michael Seat, who actually remembers something 
that was key 30 years later. That's remarkable. Yeah, uh, it, uh, and it's the sort of thing that quite naturally um, generates skepticism in, 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 uh, in some because it seems so incredible. But uh, Michael Seat was... Um, Lived in in the area of where Jay was found at the in November 1987, actually on Thanksgiving Day, and Michael C was driving his car. Um, all those years later, he can't remember if it was to work or if he was just on a pleasure drive or if he was uh, going to the swap meet. He, he's unsure about that, but what he remembers is he drove by a friend's house of his. He drive by it all the time, and uh, he saw this van parked in, in front of the house, this distinctive 1970s Ford club van with very big, oversized, shiny hubcaps. And it was this coppery, you know, the color of a penny, a, a tarnished penny. And uh, so it was distinctive in his mind. And he, and he thought, oh, my pal must have gotten a new vehicle. I've never seen that there before. I'm going to have to ask him about it. Um and he's, he describes himself as a car guy, you know, he's into cars, he's into vehicles. So this is something that he recognized as distinctive and different to him. And he just kind of, it's stuck in his head. But then when he drove home later, the van was gone. He didn't run into his pal for a few uh, weeks after that. And it just slipped his mind. He never asked him about it. Where'd that van come from and where did it go? And he never saw it again. Uh, and that was it. And then, uh, Many, many years later, he saw in the newspaper a picture of that same van and how his friend had been implicated in a, in a terrible double murder. And when he saw that, the memory kind of came back to him in a, in a sudden flash. And he told his mom, I've seen that van. I've seen that. And it really shook him up because, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is he felt guilty that it, you know, somehow if he had remembered it at the time, uh, he might have been a and done something, asked about it, or just stopped his car and knocked on his friend's door and said, hey, what's, what's up with this van? He might have been able to intervene in some way in, in the commission of those murders. So he's really haunted by that. Uh, and it sounds kind of unbelievable that he would remember it under those circumstances, but Talking to him and hearing him recreate that that memory and seeing it sort of physically uh, affect him um, to the point where he's shaking and hyperventilating about it, it's, it was very convincing. I, and he has no, I can't see any reason for him to make it up. Uh, he could be, it could be something that was didn't happen, but he he's saying what he believes to be the truth. But he's he was a very convincing. Um, witness in my in my view and in others who've, who've seen him talk about this but it was a recovered memory so to speak and that is something that has a very um rich history of 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 problems and questions about how reliable that those kinds of memories can be so it was an interesting, very interesting part. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Pulitzer Prize-winning author Ed Humes. You may know him from his many books, including No Matter How Loud I Shout. He's here today with The Forever Witness, 
How DNA and Genealogy Solved a Cold Case Double Murder. Well, you mentioned Jim Sharp earlier. And, you know, if we were watching a one-hour cold case file, this is the guy that comes in and gets assigned it. Right. (laughs) About, I don't know, 23 minutes in, a half hour in, I don't know. This guy comes in 20 years after the fact and works on it for 13 years. Yes, yes. He'd be the somber voiceover somewhere at that midpoint in the show, right? And so talking about how he tried to to bring yeah. fresh eyes to the to the old files, and uh, and he did. I mean, he there was a twist in the case that um, uh, a few months after the murders, these letters and cards began arriving, um, and from this unknown person who confessed to the crimes, described what he had done, uh, and they were really kind of vile, awful letters um, claiming credit for the killing and saying that uh, it was from a person who really just hated Canadians and, and saw his opportunity to extract his revenge for some you know, imaginary slights. And these really kind of terrorized and, and horrified the Cooks and the Van Kylenborgs. Um, the police certainly investigated them thoroughly at the time and and you know because someone claiming credit for for double murder has to be taken seriously but they felt that all the information in the letters could have been gleaned from press accounts there wasn't that sort of bit of information that only the killer could know and so they never really were convinced that it was legitimate but they also could never find the, the the author. And Jim Sharp did one of the one of the things he did was track down this this letter writer and uh, who had mailed these cards from different places around the country. But he finally tracked them down to a library in Seattle and confronted him and got him to give a DNA sample. And sure enough, uh, he was not the killer. And he apologized and he had been. In, struggling with his mental health and but you know Charf had done something nobody else in all those years could do he he you know he he, he got the guy that wrote these letters but unfortunately for the inve- overall investigation it sort of removed the only viable suspect they ever had in the case but um he was relentless and he did a lot of things novel things um he made these cold case deck of cards where the, you know, the, the, you know, playing cards, but the ace and the king and all were substitute. He substituted in pictures from his cold cases. Um, and this is something he had heard about had been done in, um, that the military had done to find terrorists in, in, uh, um, Iran and Iraq and said, Hey, you know, maybe we could put this to use. And he'd give them out in the jails and prisons, you know, thousands of these decks of cards because playing cards is a major pastime in prison. And it generated, you know, uh, a lot of information and, uh, and in a number of other cold cases led to suspects that were arrested and tried and convicted. So it was a really interesting way to get new information about old cases. Unfortunately, it didn't work in Jay and Tanya's case, um, although it did with others. So that was the kind of copy was. And so it's really not surprising that he began exploring um, this this then new idea of uh, using 
DNA and genealogy in combination to find people who otherwise couldn't be found. And this was a couple of years before uh, the first time the public became aware of, of such a thing through the Golden State Killer case. So he was kind of an early adopter of this, this as a possible solution. Bizarrely, the well-known crime writer who hails from Seattle, Ann Rule, actually knew who this letter writer was. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and rule um uh yeah, well, the late land rule, the late great true crime writer and rule um I and I should say uh Full disclosure here, I'm forever indebted to her. She gave me my very first blurb on my very first book. She was a very nice person who supported uh, um, uh, writers just starting out in their career. And uh, I was just a neat lady. And she knew Jim Scharf, too. In fact, she wrote about several of his other cases. Um, but she was mentioned in one of these letter writers, uh, vile letters and saying, maybe Anne Rule will write about my work in this case, you know, something like that. And the, um, and the, the police had, had reached out to her and said, Oh, you know, I think I know who this is because he's written to me and gave the information. And it, this was back in 1987 or 88 and it got buried in the files and nobody ever followed up on it till Jim Scharf dug it out of the old, archives and found this why didn't somebody follow this up and that's how he eventually was able to trace this uh this man through many different moves and addresses and um and hunted him down but you know it kind of shows you that sometimes in these massive multi-agency investigations important information just kind of gets filed and forgotten. And in this case, it could have been the killer who was sitting there uh, all this time. And that has happened in some of these cold case investigations. But uh, yeah, that was a little twist that I, I thought was pretty interesting because... You know, I was shocked by it. Like, wow, Ann Rule walks <laughs> into the middle of this story and walks provide something and walks out, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's pretty Again, interesting. <laughs> nonfiction is stranger than fiction, for sure. <laughs> that's for sure. Out. That's for sure. Well, actually, you know, DNA and the analysis of DNA existed at that time. If you had the DNA from your victim and you had your uh, perpetrator standing there, you could match them up. So you could but that yeah, was oh, it. Yes. Yeah. That so was that, it. The, the first time um, that was done in the U.S. courtroom was just a couple of months before um, Jay and Tanya's deaths uh, in Florida. So, yeah, that was there. And this this is the first age of DNA forensics. It was the DNA fingerprint. It wasn't a search tool. But if you had your guy the old fashioned way, um, this was better than a fingerprint, more certain than a finger fingerprint. It was the fingerprint inside all our cells. So yeah, that was the first age of, of doing, doing DNA as a forensic tool. Well, you do write about the three ages of DNA when it comes to finding criminals. That's the first one. Uh, let's talk about the two others. Yeah. So, well, and the first one, it's actual greatest power was as a tool of exoneration. And I'm sure your listeners have heard are familiar with all the cases that were reopened and, and people set free because older forensic sciences were proven to be less than scientific in some cases. And this DNA fingerprinting was a corrective for those. 
I'm speaking with Pulitzer Prize-winning author Ed Humes. You may know him from his many books, including No Matter How Loud I Shout. He's here today with The Forever Witness, How DNA and Genealogy Solved a Cold Case Double Murder. We'll talk more after a break. The Biotech Nation podcast individually can be found at www.biotechnation.com and separately subscribe through your favorite podcaster, including Amazon. Podcasts of whole Tech Nation programs continue to be available on NPR One and other podcast outlets. In the second half of our show, I continue to speak with Ed Humes about the forever witness, where a key player is someone you may be familiar with from the PBS documentary series, Finding Your Roots with Henry Louis Gates Jr. Stay with us. Tech Nation, I'm speaking with Ed Humes about his latest book, The Forever Witness, How DNA and Genealogy Solved a Cold Case Double Murder. We're talking about the three ages of DNA with respect to solving crimes. And the first one, its actual greatest power was as a tool of exoneration. Uh, I think it's we're getting close to 3,000 cases of murder and other serious violent crimes that have been reversed because of this. So not to minimize that first age, it was the most primitive age, but it was a really important one um, for, for justice. The second age was the great thing about DNA code versus, uh, you know, uh, uh, an imprint of our fingerprints is that it's easy to reduce to computer code. In fact, you know, Biology does it for us, <laughs> and it literally is a um, a searchable code uh, that, that is extracted in these DNA fingerprints. So the it occurred to the Justice Department and several states working with them, hey, let's just start a database. Uh, let's make a Google of criminal uh, criminals and a Google search for criminals, and then we'll uh, just like we manually fingerprint our violent criminals. Uh, We'll do the same with the DNA fingerprint. And so the second age of was the age of the DNA database. And now it is a search tool. Um, and uh, over half a million uh, 
criminal cases since the, its advent uh, in the 1990s uh, have been have been assisted or solved with the use of a DNA search. Now, there's just one big blind spot in um, in the second age of DNA's reach, and that is somebody has to be caught for something first before they get in the database. So that um, uh, unless uh, an offender had done something else that led to him being DNA fingerprinted, had been caught for something else. Uh, he could have might have done other things and not been caught. Uh, he was invisible, or she was invisible to the uh, to the second age of DNA technology. Um, and one of the many cold cases that fit into that blind spot was the the killing of Tanya and Jay. But now we get to the third age, and if any of you have done 23andMe, you see there is a service called Relative Finder. Let's go there. Yes. So that is what led to this third age that we are in now. And it is a completely different kind of DNA that we're dealing with. And, and, and not to get too in the weeds with, but DNA fingerprinting relies on structures inside our DNA that are very small and have nothing to do with our genetic code. They, I, in the book, I call it uh, uh, our uh, uh, molecular bubble wrap. It's basically the, the, the file dividers and, and padding between the coding sections uh, so, uh, of the DNA molecule. So it, looking at it doesn't tell you anything about the person's you know, eye color or hair color, or whether they're gonna go bald or, or what, all the things you can tell if you look at genetic coding. Um, so actually it's, 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 um, effects on privacy are pretty minimal because all it is, is literally a fingerprint inside our cells. And, and that's pretty cool. Well, now you get into these, um, consumer DNA tests and they're looking at the code, the genetic code. Um, um, not all of it because that, that, that although they're starting to now, that, because that's a vast undertaking, but significant parts of it that are responsible for our are inherited traits and through which you can trace your ancestry uh, back many generations, uh, in fact. And that's the power of the this, this relative finder that all the um, major consumer DNA databases uh, now have. Uh, you can find relatives that you didn't know existed. And if you combine that with archival searches, you know, old-fashioned genealogy, family tree building, hunts through birth records, death records, uh, announcements of of uh, marriages, and so forth in in little newspapers all over the country. All of which is now online and available and searchable. You can find anyone, whether their DNA is is in the system or not, because unlike DNA fingerprinting, which is a tool of exclusion, where you only find the one person who matches in familial DNA search, you're finding everyone you're related to. It's a tool of inclusion. So you get these long lists, which you combine with records to find your true family tree and all its many branches. And the innovation that a couple of very adept genealogists developed to do something different, not to 
start with, oh, I know who I am and I know who my parents are and who my brothers and sisters are and build the family tree out from there. They took it the other way. They took people about whom they knew no, nothing, not their identity, uh, who their parents were. Um, they may not even know where they were born uh, or what, what, taught, what their birth date is. And we're not talking about murder victims here. We're talking about um, adopted children. That's where this technique was first developed to find the true birth families and identities of adopted children and abandoned children. And it turned out you could reverse engineer the process and build the family tree back from the past to this unidentifiable unknown person uh, and, and reunite them with their birth families. And then it occurred to just a few of the people who were really good at this, that wait a minute, you could probably do the same thing with biological evidence left behind at a crime scene because the same process could lead you to a criminal, to a killer. And that was the birth of the third age of DNA. Yeah. Um, and here's where someone you might be familiar with enters the picture. Cece Moore, along with Barbara Ray Venter. But Cece Moore is who you might know from the PBS program Finding Your Roots with Henry Louis Gates Jr. Yes. Cece Moore is just such an amazing person to write about because her story is... It's one of the reasons why I was so intrigued before I knew much about this this story and I and and um was just deciding whether it could be a book. And so she was an actress, a musical theater performer, a professional. She did commercials too. And she at one point in her career she was uh um doing toy trade shows where she was Barbie come to life. I mean, she she had a very different career path, but her passion, her hobby was this puzzle piece building of family trees, which she did, you know, recreationally and, 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 but really got into and found she was really good at it. Even before these, these um, very advanced consumer DNA tests, like ancestries and 23 MEs. And, uh, she dove into it once those tests were available and she saw how far they could go uh, beyond what, you know, finding your great grandma. She, uh, she went all in on becoming really the leading expert in, in using them to, to find people and to unearth secrets. Uh, and in, in, in the forever witness, I, you know, it's, uh, everybody wants to be the mother of this particular invention, I suppose, or father. Um, but I, the earliest case I could find where you could say a, a crime was solved and uh, directly by genetic genealogy was one that CC did called the baby alpha beta case. And um, it wasn't uh she didn't consider it at the time to be a criminal investigation, but that is where she perfected the technique for doing this. And it was a baby who was found abandoned um, behind a grocery store uh, a few miles from Disneyland in Anaheim, California. Um, and the chain at the time was called was Alpha Beta. And so uh, this baby was found abandoned um, uh, near the 
back of the store near on a, on a milk crate next to the dumpster and a janitor heard crying and finds this this newborn child wrapped in a yellow blanket its umbilical cord still draped over its belly and um and comes to the rescue and ultimately this baby is uh, is um taken to the to the hospital put into foster care and then up for adoption because they could never find her parents and um many years later um, this this baby Alpha Beta now uh, a woman named Kayla Tovo asked CC for help. She found her through social media and said, "Can you help me find my story and where I come from?" And and she did. She traced her roots through these genetic networks she could assemble through um, through these uh, consumer DNA tests, and she found. Kayla's baby Alpha Beta's uh, true birth family, and with whom she's in touch with and has a relationship now to this day. Um, but what she really did was solve uh, the <laughs> this crime of child abandonment and child endangerment. And it was a very cold day that day. If that child hadn't been found in a timely way, it would have been a murder case, and she would have solved the murder case this way. She didn't need a living uh, Kayla to 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 solve the case she just needed a biological sample and um it, it's it, it was a remarkable achievement in 2014 to, to do that no one had done it quite that way before and um the the kicker to to the baby alpha beta story is the day she was born and unlocked the key to genetic genealogy investigations was also the day, give or take one, that Tanya Van Kylenborg died, November 21st, 1987. It reminded me so much of how new sciences, new engineerings, new technologies evolve. Because when you first do it, they're like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And, the, and, and uh, Cece, you know, she's an amateur genetic genealogist. She's really an actress who plays Barbie, you know, <laughs> she's an amateur. There were no professionals. <laughs> you know, there were there none. Were none. This well, is Cece, she had gone to the professionals, yeah. right? And said uh, years before and said, you know, we could be using this tool. You could be, this she went to forensic conferences. In fact, the foremost you know, Human Identification Conference, ISHI, it's called, the International Symposium on Human Identification said, hey, you guys, this is a new tool that you could do things with that you've never done before. And they just brushed her off of, right, you know, $69 uh, DNA test off of Amazon. You're going to beat our, like, billion-dollar program of identifying criminals that's been doing it for, for years. Give us a break. You know, they were... <laughs> they couldn't see the potential that someone like Cece working with, well, you know, hobbyist tools could do something that uh, they couldn't. But in fact, you know, 30 years and generations of the best crime lab, CSI, uh, homicide investigators, generations of them couldn't solve this case. Uh, and when Cece finally got the green light to do it, she found the killer's name and address and family and, and story in two hours. Two hours. That's pretty humbling. It's humbling. <laughs> the citizen scientist, amateur supposedly, amateur. Uh, who has now solved more cold cases 
than anyone else on the planet. Amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. But that's just it. That's that discreet move of when you know how to do it, when you have the new technology, bang, suddenly everything changes. I'm also reminded when I read your book uh, about you know typical birth records and census records and marriage records, et cetera, and references here and there, they can be problematic. And I'm not referring to an incident in your book, but I had forgotten until I read your book that my grandmother, Charlotte Donovan, married Patrick Gunn, hence I'm Gunn, and you would correctly surmise that Charlotte's father was named Donovan, and he was, but Charlotte's mother's maiden name was also Donovan. A Donovan married a Donovan. It's like a Smith marries a Smith or a Garcia marries a Garcia. <laughs> you know, the records can be very confusing. Oh, yeah. DNA is never confusing. No, it is. I mean, that's kind of where I came up with the title. I mean, this is sort of the witness that does, you know, doesn't forget. And, and you know, mem- memory is never an issue. It's 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 and in, in these cases, it's been sitting there waiting to be to be found uh, all this time. Uh, and, and yeah, the records and also our family, I mean, one of the, one of the unintended consequences of this new, I, I, it's not, it's not just a technology. It's kind of an art and a science, um, I suppose, because you are dealing with these records. You're also dealing with oral histories. And one of the things that's happened is that our oral histories, what we think is true about our families, um, and sometimes what's in the in those written records is not true. <laughs> the biology tells us otherwise. Uh, and it's such a common term. And, and I saw this happening a lot and right in front of my in front of me, just at a at a conference of genealogists and, and consumers, you know, in a doing a demonstration. People find out that their parent isn't their parent, that, that everything they thought about their heritage was is not true. And they, they find it out in real time as they're looking at the results of their test. Who is this person? Well, that's your father. No, it's not. Um, it's such a common occurrence <laughs> that they actually have developed, have an acronym for it. They call it an NPE when that happens, because it sounds better, you know, than <laughs> your dad's not your dad. And that can, it's, it's non, uh, Non-parental event is what some people say that stands for, but uh, uh, others say it's not the parent expected when you get your results, but it all says the same thing. And, and the idea that they need an acronym to describe it tells you that it's a, a very common occurrence, a shockingly common occurrence. You are listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Pulitzer Prize winner Ed Humes. You likely know him from his many books, including No Matter How Loud I Shout, Examining the Juvenile Justice System in Los Angeles, and Young People Caught Therein. For this, he received both the Penn Award for Research Nonfiction and the Investigative Editors and Reporters Book Prize. Today, we're talking about his latest, The Forever Witness, How DNA and Genealogy Solved a Cold Case Double Murder. Well, I have only two more questions for you. Uh, one is, um, we spoke of finding distant relatives through 23andMe and other databases, and you you go through this in the book. Many of some of which are are government, some of which are just general databases people have contributed to. But now we're seeing sort of a backlash. Maybe that's a too strong a term. Uh, 
the question is, um, a lot of people don't want to give their DNA. And sometimes you can't help but give your DNA. You'll leave it around constantly. Yeah. Well, that's, there's a, this is, yeah, there are multiple layers of, of interest and concern and, and sort of all to, to all of that. But, um, one part I think is should, should, it's important to acknowledge and think about and figure out what we want to, how we want to move forward with this. But the, the databases that have in the past been used, um, to, to use DNA as a forensic tool have all been run by law enforcement, by the Justice Department primarily, um, this massive DNA fingerprinting system. Uh, it's not in private hands. It's in public hands. It's closely regulated, um, and it can only be used in ways that are, are set out in statute and regulation. Now you have these consumer databases. They're owned by uh, private profit-making companies, um, they are not as closely regulated. You, you have people, you know, some hobbyists got the, the key database in finding the, uh, the Golden State Killer and Tanya and Jay's Killer and many other cases was set up by a couple of hobbyists and run out of their Florida bungalow with a couple of servers, you know, and they, you know, they charge very little for the service. And because um, the DNA, actual DNA profiles that you generate through a 23andMe or Ancestry belong to the individuals. They can download those DNA code files and upload them to this sort of hobbyist service where everybody gets to compare everybody else's from all these different companies. And there's like a million now, I think a million and a half subscribers to that. That's an incredibly powerful, privately held, shared public database that uh, was meant to be for genealogy enthusiasts to use to find their family members. That was the purpose. And it was also specifically open to identifying um, uh, the, the, the parentage of adopted children. That was one of the uses envisioned. It specifically did not allow police investigations, but there was also no way to police that. And that's how, that's how, the, that was the state of the privacy uh, uh, sort of honor system that was in place at the time um, that the uh, investigators exploited in the Golden State Killer case and, and used that data, even though technically it was not within the user agreement for that site. And that caused some uproar. Now, after that, the site owners announced, hey, you know, the police are using our site. If you don't like it, you better shut down your profiles. Um, and and that kind of opened the floodgates for people like CC Moore to come in and start doing uh, these investigations. But um, others in that community of of genetic genealogy adepts who who were also sort of among the pioneers said, "Wait a minute! The only reason we're powerful." and have databases that can do these amazing things is because people want to put their DNA in it. And now it's being used in a way they never envisioned in the first place. It's going to shut us down. People are going to back off. We're not going to continue to grow and, and make even more progress. Cause imagine you did this cause you want to find your distant relatives. And then some policeman shows up at your door and says, knocks and says, Hey, uh, we, uh, 
we have our eyes on a suspect in a murder case that you're related to and your DNA helped us find them, which is literally what happens in these cases. That is, yeah, that is, yeah, right. I mean, you can imagine Uncle Jerry. Oh no, that's not what I'm, I, that's not what I'm in this for. Uh, most in most now the caveat is most, almost all these cases, the people whose DNA actually, uh, led to, to somebody's arrest uh, was such a distant relative. They didn't even know they existed, but you know, the possibility of otherwise is, is quite, quite real. And, and so that's generated a lot of controversy, a lot of concerns over privacy and those have yet to be resolved. Well, I have to say there's, there's plenty of Keystone cops. How are we going to get this guy's DNA and how are we going to get that guy's DNA and, and all of those, you know, all these, these, uh, uh, different shenanigans to get them legally, you know, uh, and, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's like, you got to get the DNA, but you only have to watch one episode of law and order to know you, if you, if they give you a Coke can or a coffee cup, walk out of the station with it. Don't leave it there. Don't throw it away. (laughs) You know, but uh, you got to get the data somehow. Uh, But I I do want to ask you about this. And I mean, it's easy to say, oh, it reads like a detective novel, but a novel is fiction and you make it up out of your own head. This book has so many details that twist one way over time and another, and they're all true. And I kept wondering, because I mean, life is not like it. It did not. These details, the, these people, this data didn't present themselves to you in the, in the order <laughs> in which you were going to write it. Um, uh, and uh, how did you sit down? How, what was the, the process to sit down and tell this story in a cohesive manner? And a long and arduous process, uh, to say the least. Uh, <laughs> I think I probably wrote about three, maybe four different beginnings, um, I, which I think is the hardest but most important part for me <laughs> as a writer to get that beginning right. Um, and uh, actually, one idea I had was to begin with that moment, that knock on the door I was telling you about, where you find out that your, you know, your DNA test led to some relative of yours being being you know, fingered and arrested. Um, but ultimately, uh, the, the, I think the guide for this story and the strongest point of view, and it is the, the cold case detective, Jim Scharf. And once I realized that he was the thread that tied it all together, um, uh, except in that first part where Tanya's dad really was my, my voice, uh, it became much easier to, to structure, how to tell the story and, and all these little coincidences like baby alpha beta, the first DNA case in, in Florida, all, all these, the, 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 we didn't even talk about the discovery of mitochondrial Eve and the first, the, the first genetic genealogy, uh, uh, history, all those things were happening all at the same time. And that sort of made it possible to have a, co- a more coherent, um, narrative, uh, and, and, well, and it did feel like I, I got to do what fiction writers do with that kind of material by all the layers and and intrigue going on all at the same time. And then to bring it to the to the to the present through the still living um, family members, the survivors of the 
Cook and Van Kylenborg families and, and their experience when after all these years, they get a call from, from Jim Sharp is I think we've got them, you know, that they had long ago given up hope on, on ever getting that phone call. And, uh, um, yeah, it it made it possible more so than uh, almost any of my other n- works of nonfiction to have that that novelistic aura in in the storytelling. It was really satisfying to find <laughs> to finally nail it and figure out how that all fit together. And and I think we humans actually talk to each other in stories, even if we're telling each other. <laughs> the truth or talking about something yeah. in reality. So I think it, I think it, that's why it's effective. Yeah. You know, f- the, my initial attraction was as a journalist, you know, I'm a former newspaper reporter. So oh, that's a good story, privacy and new science. And I you know it didn't come from the CSI folks. It came from a, you know, a, an actress turned genealogy hobbyist. I mean, it, what great elements, but you know, what made it a book for me was these incredible characters and enduring and persevering and um you know their their conflicts and triumphs i mean that's what we that's the story part of it and that's that's i think much more the element that that gets people interested and excites them and makes them feel empathy you know i work with this um a colleague, uh, we we teach introduction to narrative nonfiction at, at USC, and he says, you know, this narrative nonfiction thing, these true crime books, it's it's journalism with a heart, and I think that really kind of sums it up. You know, you bring that empathy and heart and character to to a story, and uh, it can it can really, I mean, that's what I want to read. So hopefully, it's also what I what I wrote this time. You should read this book. (laughs) Ed, uh, thank you so much for joining me. You know, you're always welcome on Tech Nation. Thank you so much. And it's always great talking with you because, you know, you're so good. Oh, thanks. Thanks so much. My guest today is Ed Humes. His latest is The Forever Witness, How DNA and Genealogy Solved a Cold Case Double Murder. It's published by Dutton. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Noctrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.